0: Um, so we're talking about the, uh, the, uh, doctrine of church membership here. We established last week the fact of it from a number of scripture texts, uh, that it was practiced in the early church. That There were roles, uh, that they were clearly adding names to a list, that there were sub lists, uh, the fact that there are church decisions, uh, you choose from among your number, uh, your, uh, worship, uh, uh. And, uh, and the like, even sublists of members for the, uh, for the widows who are true widows. Um, the idea of the ordinances being practiced when the whole church was together. All of these suggest that there is a, some sort of mechanism in the life of the church to determine who's, who's a part of the church and who's, you know, perhaps there visiting, but is not a member of the church. Now you say, well, I don't really get into this membership thing. I, I don't, I don't see the point of it. Well, let's, let's try and talk a little bit about that tonight, as is often the case with, with doctrines. In fact, I, I have this all the time in, in my seminary classes when I give tests and I'll, I'll ask, why is, like, for instance, why is the virgin birth important? And usually the first answer that everyone gives is because the Bible teaches it. Okay. Which is true. Um, But uh, and that's true of a whole variety of of doctrines. But the question we really want to address tonight is why does the Bible teach it? You know, why why does the Bible see this as such an important idea? I I think there's three key purposes here of church membership that really I think stand out as we think about them. First, it establishes for all inquirers the identity of who is in. That is believers in good standing in a local assembly, and those who are out. Uh, the uh, Bible sometimes calls them outsiders, those who are without. Um, that includes not only unbelievers, but also believers who either aren't in good standing with a church or are simply visiting. Okay. In Lehman's words, church membership is the declaration by an authorized examining body that a professing individual is an official, licensed, card-carrying, bona fide Jesus representative. That's a little bit colloquial. It's a little bit uh, popular there in the way it, it's worded. But I think he's exactly right. Because the church is tasked with determining who belongs and who does not. In fact, uh, one of the overlooked verses in the passage on church discipline, we're going to look at later uh, in Matthew 18, it, It says, okay, if you've got a fault with your brother, talk to him privately. Then take two or three with you. If that still doesn't work, take it to the whole church. If that still doesn't work, then there's an exclusion. And then the next clause that's perhaps one of the most interesting ones is that I give you the keys of the kingdom. Okay, so the church is charged with the keys of the kingdom. And whomever they bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whomever they loose on earth is loosed in heaven which gives extraordinary authority to the church to determine not only who belongs in the church, but effectively who belongs in heaven. Now there's obviously exceptions to that. Churches can be wrong uh, and uh, make mistakes and, 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 and the like that that happens at the same time. I don't want to dismiss that passage for the fact of exceptions. That's the normal way of doing things. The church is there, it's tasked with examining the faith of those who come along and say, are you really, as as Lehman says here, an official, licensed, card-carrying, bona fide Jesus representative? And so there's an examination. And if the person passes that examination, he is invited to join the church and becomes then a part of that. Okay, so it determines here, answers the question, who are we? Who's the church? It's the list of members. Those are the church members. That's, that's the church. Secondly, the church membership also creates a covenant or contract of believers with one another for mutual welfare, fellowship, and discipline. I believe you've got a church covenant there at Community Bible Church. Uh, which includes a list of responsibilities that you have chiefly towards each other. Uh, probably includes some personal disciplines that you're supposed to maintain, responsibilities that you have towards, uh, towards your pastor and such. But for the most part, what's normally included in a church covenant is a list of obligations we have to each other. And so we fulfill the one another passages in those covenants. And so we covenant with each other. We contract with each other. We identify who the one another is. Again, I think I said this last week, but the, the one another passages in the New Testament aren't just a, you know, everybody around you. It's one another within the context of a local church. And uh, there's a there's a responsibility, a particular responsibility we have towards each other. You know, Galatians says um, uh, that we're to uh, take care of, you know, we're 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 to uh, meet the needs of all kinds of people, but especially those who are of your household, the household of faith. And so we have a have a a, a heightened responsibility towards those who belong to our church that exceeds that our, our responsibilities, for instance, with uh, just our neighbors or co-workers. We have a, we have, we have a higher responsibility for those within the life of the church. Galatians tells us this. Okay. So again, citing Lehman, church membership is a formal relationship between a local church and an individual Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and a Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. And so it's, it, there's there's a there's a mutual relationship here. We are accountable to each other, and they are accountable to us. We're each mutually responsible to each other, and so it answers the question there: to whom and for whom am I responsible? Okay, we're not responsible for the welfare of all Christians or of all people generally, but we are responsible for the spiritual welfare of our family. Our church family, our spiritual family, and that's true for the uh, for the officers as well. You know, you know, we we read in in Hebrews that the uh, that the uh, that the officers of the church watch for our souls and guard them as those who have to give an account. Well, who to uh, for for whom is Pastor Ken and Pastor Larry and and the others on staff here? For, to for whom are they giving account? Well, the people on that list. Not not all Christians everywhere, but that group of people. So we're all responsible for the spiritual welfare, discipleship uh, of each other, and meeting each other's needs and such. So it identifies the flocks for which pastors must give an account. It specifies who the church must include in its fellowship, whether formal or informal. And this is, we're going to see when we talk about the doctrine of communion, which is reflected there in 1 Corinthians 11 uh that we're we're to tarry one for another we're not really supposed to get the party started as it were in in our communion service until everybody's there that was the problem with the corinthian church right uh they, the, the wealthy were able to party all day eat all the good food and then the, uh, the 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 slave class the working class who had to work all day and could only straggle in after it got dark and they got off work they'd come in and all that would be left was crumbs and they called it the Lord's table. And Paul was scandalized by this. That's not the Lord's table. If you do that, if you're going to legitimately practice the Lord's table, you need to wait for one another and celebrate it all together as a group. Because if you don't, then you're not properly regarding the Lord's body and there are serious consequences to pay. So it, it tells us who's to be included, who's to be included in our formal fellowships, that is our, our communion services and such, and then also our informal services. And so, so who should we, who should we invite to, to informal, uh, you know, events that take place in the life of the church, uh, whereby we edify each other, fellowship with one or et cetera. It's, it's everyone within the life of the church. The membership also supplies all the requisite parts that need to cooperate to do the work of the ministry. So Jesus went up on high and gave gifts to men so that uh, as the pastors equip the saints for the work of the ministry, each part can supply the part that it's assigned to do. Okay, Uh, and I'm inclined to think that as God puts together churches, Christ, uh Puts patches together local churches. Uh, he actually gives people appropriately to the needs of the church and, 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 and puts those people into the membership. So it's, it's, so that the membership supplies all the Lego pieces you need to build the Millennium Falcon, right? Okay. So that, that's, that's, that's all, that's what the church has to work with. Those are the human resources that the church has. It also establishes the perimeters of the church's sphere of discipline, whether that be instructive or punitive. Okay, so, and discipline has both of those features, right? Uh, Sometimes discipline takes the form of the church punishing. Most of the time it has takes the form of instruction and remediation. But the church is not concerned about those who are outside, only about those who are on the inside. In fact, that's the language of, Second Peter 5:13 he's 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 telling them to address the problem of this man caught in an incestuous relationship. He says, take care of this problem. You need to do this. And I'm not you don't have to do this for people outside the church. But those who are inside the church, it's your responsibility to make sure that they're that they're learning obedience, that they're learning sanctification. And they're and they're cultivating uh the, uh the the these these disciplines, these gracious disciplines, uh, and that's that's your responsibility. Um those who are outside, I don't worry about them. But those who are inside, those are very important. Again, it identifies the household of faith that is the special object of good deeds. Do good to all men, but especially, especially those who are of the household of faith. And I think sometimes we get that uh turned around, twisted around sometimes uh because of our of our concern for instance for evangelism we think we're we're all going to do all kinds of things for people outside the church to attract them to come when the the focus of responsibility in terms of good deeds is actually internal especially those who are of the household of faith you need to be taking care of your own before before uh, we we turn to address the needs of those outside the church and then i also say here it establishes a beachhead for christian apologetics you know john 17 is part of this high priestly prayer that jesus gives for his apostles and for those who uh will will convert as a result of the apostles ministry and it says how are they how 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 is it that the world is going to respond favorably to the gospel message? Well, first on the list in John 17 is that you are one with one another, even as God is one within that Trinitarian relationship. The best apologetic that we can have is to establish a unity within the confines of that local church. You do that, and it's very attractive in terms of, of the gospel. Okay, so it establishes a beachhead for Christian apologetics. And then thirdly here, church membership also identifies, and particularly in a Baptist context, more on that in just a bit here, who can legitimately participate in the decision making of the local church. Okay, so who gets to vote? Who gets to speak in the business meetings? Who gets to, you know, you know, float ideas? Uh, who, get, who gets to do those things? Well, only the members. Okay. And in fact, that is the pool from which the officers are supposed to be found. Choose from one of your, from, from your number, those who will serve in terms of deacons and such like that. So, so we all, we, we as members are those who can legitimately speak into the life of the church in an official capacity. And so it answers the question, again here, who speaks for us? Okay, so three questions here. Who are we? To whom am I responsible? For whom am I responsible? And who speaks for us? And the answer for all those things is the church membership. Okay, so it, it's very important here. Now, uh, what what is necessary to church membership? And there's some debate on this. Of course, you're familiar with the uh, the fact that uh, a church membership can be granted to unbelievers in some denominations uh sometimes it's a semi membership sometimes it's a full membership uh but uh oftentimes it does not require regeneration to be a part of a church uh, some are baptized or sprinkled as infants and brought into the church they're not regenerate they're not old enough to they're not psychologically mature enough to express uh faith and so these are not believers they're unregenerate individuals, and yet they are brought into the community of faith, uh, at least as semi-members, and then depending on what your, your denomination, uh, they sort of morph into full members once they've come of age. Now, there are some denominations that uh, require some level of confirmation, say at age 12 or 14 or something of that nature, in order for the individual to assert that, yes, they that faith into which I was baptized as an infant, I now embrace as, on my own. Uh, but some churches don't even require that, okay? Uh, but uh, in, the Baptist, in Baptist life, and I think biblically speaking, regeneration is required for membership. Those who received his word were baptized and added to the church, and that's the consistent pattern, okay? They have to be receiving, believing, being baptized, and then being added. And so we find here, of all the Baptist distinctives, a regenerate church membership is the most essential to the Baptist system. And I've, got to, I've got to sort of tease out what I mean by that. You're, some of you perhaps are familiar, perhaps all of you are familiar, with the Baptist distinctives. Something of a, a crude acronym Uh, that's been adopted by a lot of Baptist church, churches to establish those, you know, those nodal points of belief that tie them together. It's kind of an, it's kind of an awkward list as acronyms tend to give us, right? Because when, when you've got an acronym, the letter has to line up with a, with, with the idea. Sometimes that doesn't work very well. And that's, I think, true here of the, of the, of the Baptist distinctives. Some of these are Quite important. Some of them are not nearly so important. But I think if you think of them as a collective, they sort of define what a Baptist is. And so you can see the list there. B, B is biblical authority. And so we, we, we recognize the Bible and not, not the church's creeds, councils, or confessions, but ultimately the Bible that stands behind them. It's not to say that creeds and confessions are bad, but ultimately those are answerable to the Word of God. And if they can be proven to be wrong uh, by the Word of God, then, then those elements can be dismissed. So the church, church's final authority on all matters of faith and practice is the Bible. So that's biblical authority. Autonomy of the local church. No one outside the church. May dictate what the church believes or does. That's why we're getting such, uh, uh, you know, such conflict right now going on with the uh, with the COVID restrictions, particularly you see in Canada, because there's a structure outside the local church that's telling them what to do. And of course, this 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 grates against uh, this principle here, and particularly the last one, separation of church and state. So not only can no others larger church body tell the church what to do the civil authorities can't either so uh, uh, priesthood of the believer uh, there is no priest okay uh, human priest that stands between me and God who has to pray for me, represent me, hear my confessions, assign penance to me. there is no such priest in the Baptist Church. we're all priests ultimately we all can direct have direct access to God. In prayer, uh, in receiving the scriptures and reading them and such. There's two ordinances, T. Local church has two valid ordinances, baptism and communion. Individual soul liberty is very close to the priesthood of the believer, but a little bit different. No one represents us to God in priesthood, in the priesthood and individual soul liberty. No one, no person can be coerced to assent to religious dogma with which he does not agree. I have the liberty and the ability to read the Bible, to know what it says, and to decide for myself how it is that I'm going to uh, act on what I've read. There's the Regenerate Church membership, two offices, uh, pastor and, and deacon, And then the last one was separation of church and state. But as we look at that list, here's, here's here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the question here. Are they all of equal importance? No. Some of them are not nearly as important as other. Some of them aren't even distinctive of Baptists. Many of these you could say here, there's other denominations that believe in biblical authority. There's other denominations that believe in two ordinances. So, so we don't really have a corner on those things. But what ends up happening is if we Pull them all together, they collectively make a network of ideas uh, that we can rightly call distinguishing as a group of the Baptist faith. But the one on which the the one on which all the rest hinge are this is this regenerate church membership. Why is it that a lot of these things work? Well, because the people in the church are believers. We have the autonomy of the local church. We, 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 we govern our own affairs because we are all believers and we are all spiritually mature enough to contribute to the governance of the church. That's, that's why congregationalism works in Baptist life because ostensibly everyone in the church is a believer and has the spiritual maturity necessary to participating in the life of the church. Uh, so for instance, in a Presbyterian church, you don't have Nearly the level of congregational participation. Instead, that's, that's given largely to the elders. There's a, there's a ruling of the elders. Now sometimes they will consult with the congregation, even, you know, some votes on an occasion, but usually the elders are running the church in a much more heavy-handed way. Why? Because that's where the faith is vetted. You go into a Presbyterian church, you want to get ordained to the ministry boy, do you have to jump through hoops. Why? Because those are the people that are gonna be ruling the church, okay? Um, that the vetting doesn't take place so much at the, at the membership level, but on the eldership level because they're running the church. But Baptists have to vet individuals at the membership level because those are the people that are running the church. Uh, so congregational government really only works if you have a regenerate church membership, you don't have a regenerate church membership, then you've got unbelievers running the church and that's bad news. Okay. The reason we have soul liberty is because we're all believers. The reasons, the reason that we can uh, have the priesthood of the belie- believers, because the fact that we're Christians, we have access to God in prayer. We can make decisions about the, the text because we have the indwelling Holy spirit, that causes us to embrace what we read, okay? So so all of these elements hinge on the fact of a regenerate church membership. And above all else, there, there's no other Baptist distinctive that is more important, at least to the system, than a regenerate church membership, okay? Now you could say, well, isn't biblical authority more important than church membership? Okay, what I'm saying is it's important to the system, to the Baptist system, in order for the Baptist idea to work, the Baptist principle to work, the membership all have to be believers. In order for the the whole political structure of a Baptist church uh, to to work uh, for us, so you can see a number of points that I make there at the uh, at the end here. I think establishes that. Uh, here's Justice Anderson. Uh, in Southwestern Journal of Theology, a regenerate church membership is the cardinal point of Baptist ecclesiology and logically the point of departure for church polity. Okay. How you're going to run the church is expressly determined by whether the members of your church are actually believers. Millard Erickson, some of you have heard that name. Congregational polity is possible and preferable because it alone takes seriously the principle of the priesthood and spiritual competency of all believers and the promise that the indwelling spirit will guide all believers. We don't have to have a trained clergy to rule the church. We can actually disperse the rule of the church within the congregation because all believers have this spiritual competency that is given to them by the indwelling Holy Spirit granted to them in regeneration. J.L. Reynolds, if churches are composed only of such as give credible evidence of having been taught the Spirit of God, then they may be safely entrusted with the management of their own interests. The only people that can be trusted to manage the church of God as God would expect them to are believers. Then Stanley Grins, a regenerate church membership is what allows the entire company of believers to discern God's will, Christ's will for his people. Okay, so regeneration is, is the centerpiece, the very, the very cardinal uh, piece of the puzzle when establishing who can be members of a local church. I think this is established in scripture very, very clearly. Acts 2.41, those who received his word were baptized and added. Acts 247, then, as we continue on, the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. In fact, it's called the number, right? Okay. (laughs) And they apparently are keeping count of how many people are in the church. Probably it's a list of names. Okay. And they do this uh, to establish who's in, who's out, who can make decisions for the life of the church, uh, who are we responsible for. Acts 5 continues, more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly being added to the number, the number. Acts 11 assumes that the church was comprised of people who had made commitments to which they had been, that they needed to remain true. Acts 20, be shepherds of the church of God. Who's the church of God? Well, the the people that Christ bought with his own blood, Okay. So the church is made up of regenerate elect attuned for uh people. And then all of the letters of of the New Testament are written to the church of God in Corinth, which is actually kind of interesting. Uh almost all of the letters with the exception of of course of the ones uh that were written to individuals Titus uh and first and second Timothy. The rest of them are written directly to churches. In fact, it's almost shocking uh, in in many of these letters that that Paul actually seems to snub the pastor. You know, he doesn't say here to you know to to uh, uh, to Pastor Ken Brown and all the people of the church at CBC. No, no, it's it's. He's writing to the people of the, of the church of CBC, and sometimes he doesn't even mention the name of the pastor. Sometimes he does, but sometimes he doesn't. It's it's almost as though this is a deliberate decision on Paul's part. He can bring this message directly to the people because they're believers. They can hear, they can understand, they can, they can process, welcome the information that he has, and put it into action, okay, because they're regenerate. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself, a radiant church with no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless before God. Okay, so here again is this statement. Christ, who is the church? Those for whom Christ died. And, And it's this group of people that God is... Bringing forward in regeneration, in, in sanctification until the point of actual perfection, you know, entire sanctification, as Paul calls it in Thessalonians, right? To present the church to Christ as a radiant church that has been perfectly sanctified. Okay. So it, it's, it's composed then of people who are believers. Okay. So it's, it's clearly stated that regenerate, red, regeneration precedes membership, but also we say here it's theologically necessary. So membership in the local church is, is symbolic of the believer's union with Christ on the large scale. Remember the, the baptism of being baptized into a local church is emblematic of a spiritual baptism whereby we have been united with Christ in the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection. So our union with Christ that is invisible and spiritual is demonstrated, is pictured in this water baptism that brings us into Christ, into the body of Christ. And, and we're going to see when we talk about the ordinances, that's a particularly important piece of the baptism ceremony it's not just getting wet and saying i'm with jesus rather it's it's we, you are you are being baptized into association and into communion with the community of the saints who accept you as one of them okay and so that's what's going on when we have baptism okay so regeneration uh is pictured then in the baptism so the church is the community of those in christ cannot be reduced to those who have come near in terms of curiosity or with willingness to fraternize with believers it's only those who have been made partakers of the divine nature okay we also find that reception of instruction in the church is incumbent upon believers who have adopted the christian worldview and that's 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 uh, it's something that I think I've, I've become come more and more uh, convinced is the purpose of preaching and the purpose of pastoring. It is to cultivate in a group of believers, the Christian worldview, okay? Which by which I mean, these are the, the foundational principles that the Bible lays out as to how I'm supposed to live how the world is supposed to work, how the church is supposed to act. And and I am supposed to govern everything in my world according to the worldview uh, that is this network of truths that all intersect together in the Christian scripture. That's the purpose of preaching, to, de- to develop a Christian worldview. And the only way that that can happen within the life of the church is if the people who are in the church actually... Have embraced the rudimentary principles of the biblical worldview, and we're, we're always learning more, right? We're always, we're always cultivating a greater knowledge of what the scriptures have to say. Uh, but in order for this to to move forward, there has to be this essential embrace of the truth of scripture. Okay, and so the whole of the of the of the letters uh, in in the in New Testament are written. To those who are elect, to those who have been chosen, to those who have received Christ Jesus the Lord and our children of light. And I've 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 just I've just written out all of these uh, these uh these introductory and closing uh lines from so many of the books of the New Testament, these letters that Paul wrote, Peter wrote, John wrote. They're all written to people who have embraced the Christian worldview and want to embrace embody the whole of it okay so we have to be regenerate in order to do that thirdly not only are the spiritual duties of the church members out of reach of unbelievers but also ecclesiastical duties and ecclesiastical duties in fact are spiritual duties right okay so 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 we have these responsibilities to serve one another And the only way that we can do these things, the only way that we can have the grace to minister to one another is to have first received that grace from our Lord Christ. So unbelievers are in a position to adjudicate neither the spiritual worthiness of church officers nor the spiritual unworthiness of wayward members who are in danger of being fellowshiped. Can you imagine unbelievers to determine who's going to be the next pastor? Unbelievers determining who gets to stay in the church and who gets to, who has to leave. Oh, can you just, just, the amount of corruption that could be introduced to the church. If unbelievers are put into that position, even mundane questions of financial stewardship are really never spiritually neutral. What building are we going to build? What, uh, what missionaries are we going to select? Uh, what teaching aids and curriculums are we going to use in the Sunday school? These are not things that can be determined by unbelievers. Um, and even, even, even such a basic, and I know sometimes within life of church, there's often a question, is there anything that non-members can do here? Can, you know, can a non-member work in the sound booth? If he doesn't really talk to anybody and he's just really good with the equipment. Can he, can he do that? And, 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 I think in general, the answer has to be no, because all of these are spiritual functions. They're ecclesiastical functions. And the question that I have to ask is, why does that poor fellow who's back there in the sound booth, why doesn't he want to join the church? Why doesn't he want to submit to the accountability and the, and the, and the edification of the local church? Why doesn't he want to be part of the number? And if someone just refuses to do that, there, there's, there's something spiritually wrong with that person. And there's something spiritually wrong about him trying to do church stuff if he won't be part of the church. So again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking somewhat cautiously here because I don't know what your policies are there at CBC. I mean, I, I I, I I I I suspect that it is possible, at least, that I could be a you know speaking against the policy, and if I am, I I, I do apologize for that. Uh, but I, I think, in principle, uh, I have to stand with what I've just said there. Okay, unbelievers simply cannot be stimulated to make the kinds of decisions that we need to make in the life of the church. So uh, biblically, it's very clear that all members in the church are are saved theologically it's necessary according to those three points and then historically i think we have a a historical record now over the course of centuries to see what happens to the church when it is populated by unbelievers uh exhibit a here is roman catholic church right okay we're, we're you're you're familiar with the you know the basics of church history right there's a uh the the the, the the Roman Empire really tried to crush the church out of existence for almost three centuries, two and a half centuries, really. Uh, and and it's, it's just a miserable, dismal time. And then, you know, 313, there's an edict that makes Christianity legal. By the time we get to the middle end of the fourth century, it's not only legal, it's, it's requisite. It's the state religion. And it's not too long after that, that when Rome conquers people, they actually baptize the conquered people into the church. Okay. And so it's either die or be baptized into the Roman church. And they, okay, I'll do that. That's no problem. I'll get wet. And so what ends up happening now is you've got a church that is populated by huge numbers of people who aren't even believers. And what ends up happening then is not only a syncretism, so you get pagan rituals, uh, pagan practices that that infiltrate into the life of the local church, um, and then also you, you just end up losing orthodoxy. People don't have to believe anything in order to be part of this. They just have to be baptized in. And so what ends up happening is that the church – of the medieval period was much as much a civil or political entity as it was a spiritual entity. Now it attempted to maintain some of those spiritual functions. At the same time it it it, it, it gathered to itself so much civil um and political clout uh, that it really could scarcely be distinguished uh, from some of the other civil structures that, that populate Europe. And so what happens is the church is, is, is lost in terms of orthodoxy, orthodox belief. And so, uh, medieval Christianity is a disaster. Okay. But the same thing happens in, in, uh, Protestant life as well. Are you familiar with the, uh, halfway covenant, for instance? This is a sad story of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, after serving as the sole pastor of his grandfather's church for 21 years. 21 years, he was the pastor. So he, so he inherits this church from his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who had pastored the church for 55 years. Jonathan Edwards receives the church. He begins to pastor it. He pastors for 21 years, realizes there's a severe problem with the church, namely that most of the people in the church aren't believers. Okay. They are, they were a congregational church that practiced infant baptism, which is a really bad combination, right? Okay. So everybody's, you know, as a child, infants are baptized into membership of the church as halfway members. And then they grow up into the church and without any sort of mechanism become all the way members. So after the course of decades, the church is populated and governed by because they're congregational, people who are unbelievers. Edwards thinks this is a real problem, and he's right. Okay, he oversees the uh, the, the Great Awakening, becomes one of the most well known figures in the American colonies, and after twenty one years, he finally decides I'm I, I've got enough coupons now to tackle this problem in in the church and survive it, but he doesn't. Uh, he proposes, uh, that a regenerate membership be made mandatory for his church and the church responds by voting him out. At, and, and the numbers are astounding. He's voted out 230 to 23. 230 to exclude him from as past pastor, 23 to retain him. Okay. Because they, he was upsetting this, this apple cart and. If you're familiar with the uh, the congregational church, it, it, you can scarcely find them today. Every once in a while, you spot one, but for the most part, the congregational church has been absorbed by the uh, by the United Churches of Christ and other liberal organizations. They no longer exist because they lost the most important piece: they lost regenerate church membership. And uh, so that that uh, it's it's a it's a sad story. that's true not only of Roman Catholicism. It's easy to whip them because they're 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 on the other side. But it's true of the Protestants as well. Okay. So I have a question here. Why is it then that uh, regenerate church membership fell into this disfavor? Why did it happen? Uh, it, it's pretty clear that the Bible teaches it. We have some good theological reasons, practical reasons, why it's necessary. Why did why did the church sort of gradually migrate away from it? I've got uh, four reasons given here. First is the rise of sacramental views of the Eucharist and the introduction of infant baptism. So based in part on unsustainable exegesis of some passages in acts where individuals and their whole households were baptized, there's an assumption there that must've included kids. Uh, there's nothing there that says as much, but it must have. And so they act, extrapolate the children must have gotten baptized. Uh, but then, uh, as, as aberrations crept into the church in terms of, of, of baptism, uh, regeneration became less and less necessary. Some of it was the weather, you know, in the, in the, in the north, it was really difficult to do the baptisms. Because half the, half the year the water was too cold or too solid, uh, to, to do baptisms. And so they, they started experimenting with lesser forms. And then the urgency of, of getting a, a, a child safe, uh, and I don't even have to plunge them under the water. I can just, you know, drip a little water on them. They can be good. And so all these things come together. To, uh, to so that the baptismal ages drop lower and lower and lower and lower and lower, and uh, and so uh, regeneration ceases to be an, a concern. Okay. Second, there is an influence of Judaizing tendencies to identify the New Testament church as Old Testament Israel. Okay, uh, and specifically then. Uh, if, in fact, you joined Israel by being circumcised as an eight-year-old boy, you must join the church the same way, not by circumcision, but by another rite, okay? And that rite would be baptism, okay? And so, in the Old Testament, you don't have a regenerate participation in the the Israelite community. The Jewish community, the Israelite community was a mixed group. Some believers, some unbelievers, Okay. Not so with the church. Church is a different kind of body entirely. Okay, It's a regenerate group. Um, but what happened is people tried to create continuity between Israel and the church. And in so doing, uh, what suffered was the regenerate church membership. Thirdly, we've talked a little bit here about the powerful bishopric and state religion. So once the church fell under the control of powerful bishops and secular governments, the need for a regenerate church membership to govern the church's identity, philosophy, and mission disappeared. The bishop speaks and the church acts and the, and congregational polity disappears. Of course, almost entirely in the Roman Catholic world, uh, the idea of congregationalism is absent. And so for that reason, uh, regeneration doesn't seem all that Necessary to the life of the church because the bishop keeps orthodoxy in place. The people don't have to participate in that. Um, yeah, I'll skip. I'll skip the next one here because it's a little bit complex here. But, uh, the first one, yes, go ahead, please. Um, someone like R.C. Sproul and probably the Presbyterians would yeah. they fall under that point too Because they they look at it. As, what is a sign like circumcision was? Yes. Yeah, uh, many within the Presbyterian community, not all, but many, uh, probably most, uh, see a continuity between Israel and the church. And so, uh, in order, so, so why do they baptize infants or sprinkle them? It's to bring them into the community of faith. And if you would go to, if you go to a baptismal service, I've been to a couple of them, uh, in a, in a Presbyterian church, uh, they don't actually come out and say that person is regenerate. You know, right. I, I mean, I, I, I went to one in, uh, in New England, up in Boston, and, uh, the whole family was getting baptized, brought into membership, mom and dad and a baby. Okay. Mom and dad, uh, they, uh, they sprinkled him with pretty much the same formula you hear in the Baptist church, you know, obedience to our Lord's command. I baptize you now in the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit. And, um, and, and, and with the, with the implication here that this person is in fact, a believer based on your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus and obedience to our Lord's command. And then they come to the baby and I'm wondering, okay, what exactly is, are they going to say about the baby? Because they can't say it, um, you know, based on your profession of faith, and so what they did was they they actually used the uh, uh high priestly uh blessing numbers the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace and so the idea here is by bringing that person to the community of faith they can be nurtured into the faith they can be exposed to the gospel for their for the entirety of their childhood and and in that uh, they are they their i don't want to say their likelihood of salvation Grows, but effectively that's the case, right? Um, I mean, so they would look for a regenerate membership at some point, right? right? Yes, and most Presbyterian churches will 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 make you go through some sort of a confirmation ritual or classes when you hit twelve or fourteen or whatever age is determined by the church to say, okay, that faith into which I was hopefully baptized as an infant is now something that I personally embrace. Okay. And so then they become full members, which is, is something of a safeguard. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say that they're completely fast and loose. They're not. Uh, they do have safeguards in place. I think the Baptist system is, is much, a much, uh, better and more biblical model of how to do it. Okay, we've we've sort of talked around this one already, but not only do you have to be saved, regenerate, but also baptized. Critical importance of water baptism is both a church ordinance and entry right into the local church is going to be discussed at greater detail below. But for now, it's sufficient to say that immersion is symbolic of the believer's union with Christ and his union, after due examination, with the body. Okay, again, there's a, there's a vertical aspect of baptism and a horizontal aspect. It says, I'm with God and I want to be with you. And the church reciprocates and we want you to be with us. Okay. So that, that's, that's what happens in baptism. And it's, it's beautiful when it happens the right way. Um, and I think sometimes we, we lose something when we baptize otherwise where, where there is no horizontal aspect. I'm just going to get baptized and that's it. No, 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 no. You're baptized into a body, into communion with us, with a community. And so that's, that's the goal of, of baptism. That's, that's how you get in. Okay. So it's the entry, right. And that's, um, in, in just about every generation, but our own last couple generations, that's how baptism has been viewed as the entry, right into the church. Um, Along the way, more recently, the the idea of baptism as the first step of obedience, individual obedience, sort of took pride of place. Now, it's true, of course, that baptism is the first step of obedience. I don't want to say that it's not. It is. At the same time, the idea of defining baptism that way is actually something of a historical adjustment, if I can put it that way. Uh, through most of the history of the church, baptism has been viewed primarily as the entry right into the church. This is what you have to do to get in. okay? And I think that's the, the biblical understanding of what baptism is. What I need to do in order to get in, uh, to, to be part of the church. okay? It's the pad, pattern of scripture. Those who received his word were baptized and they were added to the church, added to this number. Okay, so you have to be saved. You have to be baptized, duly uh, in the uh, in, in terms of the church's participation in that. And then thirdly, here Christian deportment. Okay, you, you there has to be, a, a, and and I have to be careful here. There has to be a level of obedience to what the Word of God says if a person is going to be part of the life of the church. Uh, let me just expand here. A, a doctrinally credible person. They ask, Hey, are you a believer? Tell me your, give me your testimony. Tell me how you came to know Jesus Christ. But there's also to be an examination of one's conduct as well. Okay. Since there are legitimate grounds for excluding someone from membership based on his conduct, there actually has to be an examination To someone wanting to get into the church to see whether he's already doing those things, which would require him to be excluded. (laughs) So there has to be a level of Christian deportment that is exhibited by that. He can't be living in known and willing sin and be brought into the life of the church. Doesn't mean he can't struggle with sin. Doesn't mean he can't have habits that he's really working hard to break that that's not an impediment to becoming part of the church. But if you're in known sin, you're comfortable in unconfessed sin, things that the Bible says is clear, is clearly wrong. Then you can't really be part of the church because as soon as we bring you in, we're going to have to put you out because you're, you're, you're living in, in, in in out of conformity with what the God, with what the Bible says. So, um, Question: A couple of questions here that associate. What what level of deportment are we looking for? Well, uh, actually, ask another question before we get there. Sh- should churches require uh, a list of things that a believer has to do in order to be part of a membership? And uh, one that often comes to the the top of the list. In terms of discussion are this, uh, part of the, uh, New Hampshire creed. There's a, there was a New Hampshire confession and a, and a, and a, and a covenant that came out both in the mid 19th century by a fellow by the name of Newton, um, Newton Brown. And, uh, and this covenant was adopted by a lot of Baptist churches. It's sort of considered the standard Baptist covenant. And in it that there is a statement here that I I covenant with everyone in the church that I will abstain from the use of alcoholic drinks as a beverage. And that's been a that's been a point of some debate and question over the years. Is it legitimate for a church to require of its members something that the Bible itself does not actually and clearly require? Is that a legitimate thing for a church to do? Okay. Well, this question I say is complex. It pits two pieces of Baptist polity against one another. Individual soul liberty. I get to choose how I'm going to apply the scripture myself and local church autonomy. We get to choose what our congregation does. Okay. On one hand, it's troubling to exclude a member on extra biblical grounds for a disagreement over non-essentials. Especially when there's no other church for them to go to. But there's also a real sense that once we join to a church, we relinquish our own will to the will of the body. Now this is something that's often lost in our, in our very Americanized individualist kind of world, right? You know, nobody can tell me what to do. Okay. At the same time, when we come together for church, there is a sense in which we are all agreeing with one another that this is probably the best thing we ought to do together in order to accomplish the mission of the church. Some of those things we do all the time and we don't think about it, right? We're going to get together at 1030. Or 10 or I don't know when you meet. right? Okay. So we're all going to get together at 1030. Now, it's possible for individual members to say, oh, no, I'm not. I'm going to get together at 11. I don't get up that early on Sunday. So, well, well, no, you, you can't do that. Once you, once you become part of the body, you relinquish some of your individual privileges and you submit to the will of the church. And the will of the church is that we meet at 10 o'clock for church. And so that's when we meet. Okay. Um, and usually that's not too much of a problem, but sometimes when it comes to personal behavior choices, We can get a little bit antsy about that. You mean you're going to tell me I can't drink? No, no, no. You can't tell me that. Okay. And there's uh, perhaps, you know, reason, historical or specific to your community, uh, that says, you know, Paul said, I'm not going to eat any meat for as long as I live for the sake of the, for the, for the sake of the church. Is it so great a thing for you to say something similar? for the life of the church for the health of the church i'm going to submit i might not agree but I'll submit while i'm here so I, I do believe that a church has the liberty and authority to do that at the same time i do believe that the church needs to be very cautious in doing that you know uh, in, in in just you know creating a long list of Extra biblical rules that you have to do just because. Okay, uh, you know some of you have come out from uh, from from situations where where that was sort of the norm in the life of the church. You know, you had to dress a certain way, you had to have your hair a certain length, you had to, you know, there was a whole list of things you had to do, and and those churches probably were uh, were were abusing this idea here at the same time i do believe that the uh, church as a group can decide as a whole to engage in specific initiatives or activities and the, and we all need to get on board if we're really a part of the body so it's it's rather a controversial topic um, but uh, i think that we can as long as as no one neither neither the church nor the individuals are too aggressive or abusive with the principal, uh, can engage in some of this. I, I, don't, I don't Any, any thoughts on that? Some, some actually take this another step and say, okay, well, we're not going to make all of the members do all of these things, but in order to be part of the leadership team in order to be a pastor or a deacon or whatever, or a Sunday school teacher, then there's a there's a there's sort of a list within the list, right <laughs> an extra list, so in order to be a member, these are the things that you have to believe and do in order to be a Christian worker or a teacher or a pastor. These are the things that you have to do, and it's a longer list okay um, there's some merits to that, and there's some demerits to that. Uh, the merits are that uh, there is a sense in which we can expect a level of commitment that is greater from those who are in leadership in the life of the church. Um, and uh, particularly when it comes to doctrine, if they're going to be teaching, we all want to be teaching the same thing. And so perhaps there would be a greater degree of conformity necessary for the teaching uh, that's, uh, that's ongoing. So it's a mutual thing. The problem with it is that you sometimes get a two tier uh, idea of Christianity. You know, you Here's 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 the laity the normal people who aren't very committed and here are the super Christians these are the ones who are the teachers the pastors the deacons and they've got a spirituality that is greater than that of the ordinary people any time you get that 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 two-tier idea of sanctification it, it never seems to go well and so there's there's some hesitations i have with that although that can be a way to remedy uh, the problem, uh, that, uh, we've, we've, we've sort of, uh, raised here, uh, in, in, in terms of deportment in the, in the life of the church. Any, any questions or thoughts on that? Want to add? I, oh, go ahead, oh, I know when, uh, I have a Christian college, there was a community standards that we all agreed to, and it would have included extra or non, or not non-biblical, extra-biblical principles, but it was for the sake of the community. Right. And they acknowledged it that way. So you had to reflect. Yeah, and to- I think that's an important thing to do, acknowledge it. You know, we can say, you know, you know, for instance, we're not going to, as a, as a church, we're going to try not to be drinking because we've got somebody who's a recovering alcoholic in the life of the church. And for the sake of his spiritual health, we're not going to do that. Okay. And, and that, I think that's a, that's a marvelous thing for a, a church to, 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 to covenant together to do that for the sake of one of the members. Okay. I, I do think it's also important for the church to say that's why we're doing it. We're, we're not doing it because the Bible actually teaches that this is required or necessary. There's a reason though to do this and it's a good Sound biblical reason why we would engage in some sort of an activity that the Bible doesn't absolutely require. Yeah. Good Mark, point. I had a question on uh, the second line of the last paragraph on question one. Okay. Adiophora. What is adiophora? Adiophora is the, uh, is the things indifferent. Okay. So there are things in the Bible that are spelled out. And and you've got to believe these and you have to do these things because the Bible clearly mandates them. But then there's also things which we call the things indifferent or the adiaphora. Those are things that God doesn't actually speak to or speaks only vaguely to. Um, And so there's. So there's liberty that we have in those areas. If, if the Bible doesn't speak clearly about something, then Christians have liberty. Nonetheless, even in that, the scope of those things where there's liberty, I don't think the church just doesn't speak at all. Okay. Uh, and so it is, it's, it's grounded in which we have to be very careful. Um, but I, I think we can make a case for, for, for sometimes including things in our behavioral standards that are not absolutely mandated in scripture. And there's a legitimate biblical basis for, for doing that. Um, one last thing. And we'll, we'll, we'll run, we'll run here. The last thing to get into the church body is you've got to be, you've got to be regenerate. You've got to be baptized. You have to have good deportment, but also that has to be recognized by the people. It's the responsibility of the whole church to approve the fitness of the candidates for membership. It's not just something that the pastor does or a deacon does or a committee does. It's actually the whole church. And uh, for that reason, it's probably a good idea uh, to get as much exposure of of the whole church to individuals. Put their name in the bulletin. Get, let people rub shoulders with them. Uh, perhaps have them give a, a brief testimony. Uh, before the church to establish the credibility of their testimony, because it's the responsibility of the whole church, right? Matthew 18, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Those whom you bind, those whom you bring into membership, will be bound in heaven. Those whom you loose, that is you release them from membership, those will be released from from heaven. So it's a very important thing for the church to examine the credibility of the profession and and ascertain the baptism and see the good deportment of a person before they they're they're brought into membership so it's not automatic just because you're regenerate and you're baptized and and you and you live well you've got to be brought into the membership uh, by a vote of the body and so paul says accept those even those who are weak in the faith not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions but because you need to bring him into the body in order to cultivate his sanctification. So this idea of accepting is something that's a mutual responsibility of church members. We accept people into uh, the body uh, where discipleship can take place. And of course it means there's also a responsibility of the church to exclude members as, as necessary as well if they're going to be including them, but that more on that next week uh when we talk about uh church discipline. Yes, Sharon. I have two questions. Um yep. the first one is on closed communion and open communion. Yeah. Um could you comment about that? Yeah, I'll I'll punt on that one. We're gonna talk about that when when we talk about the ordinances. We'll we'll talk about it at, at, at length. Okay. And the other one is uh you're talking about the um the membership is supposed to be Indwelled uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, so when they're having votes, they ideally should all be in agreement, should they not? Correct. Right. Yeah, and, I, I skipped that box there, but yes. Um, but, but then you sometimes don't get that. Or you can have a, a pastor that chooses people, uh, to be on the elder board or the deacon board, right. whatever, who can be manipulated easily. I mean, that's not a good thing, obviously, but right. it has happened. Right, yeah, you have to have all the pieces together to have proper Baptist polity, right. Um, and and you're right that sometimes these procedures aren't followed, but I would argue in that case, you've got a church that's out of order. This is the way it's supposed to be, but sometimes it doesn't happen that way. But you're right that, in fact, that, that I, for sake of time, I skipped that box, that very last box there. Should the vote to receive a member be unanimous? And ideally, yes, because if you're voting no, you're saying that person either isn't a believer or I know something about his behavior that disqualifies him from membership. So if that's true, the church needs to know about it. Okay. So if somebody votes no, I'm going to say, why, why is that person voting no? If it's just a personal grudge, then that, then that person needs to be disciplined for voting no. (laughs) Uh, if it's if he's got some some insider knowledge that the church needs to know then then let's get it out here because we're we don't want to bring someone into membership who's going to to bring disgrace upon the church so yes uh you ought to have a unanimous uh uh it, it, the, the vote for membership ought to be unanimous usually it is i i've never been in a situation where it wasn't but i but I'm sure somewhere along the way, there's been some no votes, uh, for members being brought in for, for various reasons, good and bad. Okay. Well, we will come back, uh, next week then, talk about, uh, transitions. Uh, so if you're already baptized, you have to get baptized again or, or is there some way to transfer membership? We're going to uh, talk about how to get in, uh, in terms, in terms of the, of the details. And then we're going to have to talk about how to get out. Uh, there's some good ways to get out and there's some troubling ways uh, to get out of the church. And so we'll talk about them uh, next week. Okay, we'll look forward to seeing you then.